Welcome to another episode of Bullyproof, where we shine a spotlight on workplace bullying. In recent months, we've seen a rise in reported incidents of bullying and harassment. So in today's episode, we are going to zoom in on the crucial role that leaders and HR play in creating safe and inclusive spaces where people can speak up, where people feel psychologically safe to challenge unacceptable behaviour. And let's just be clear, it's not the victim's responsibility to deal with a bully. Bullying demands systematic and legal intervention by your employer and HR. Plus, it's the right thing to do. I am Marilise de Villiers, your host. I'm a mindset and performance coach and the author of Roar, How to Tame the Bully, inside and out. We live in a constantly connected world, yet people have never felt more disconnected. You're listening to Bullyproof, a podcast to shine a spotlight on workplace bullying, today's silent epidemic. Research indicates that 75% of workers will either be a target, witness bullying, or both. Each episode will explore how targets can bullyproof themselves, and how leaders and HR can bullyproof their organizations. It's time to find your roar. Now, here's your host, Marilise de Villiers. I'm delighted to welcome Melissa Sabella and Caroline Marsh from the Honeycomb Works as my guests today. Hey, both. Welcome. <laughs> so, let me tell you a little bit more about both of them. I'll start with Melissa. Melissa is the founder and CEO of the Honeycomb Works, an organization whose mission is for everyone to feel like they belong and are free to invent at work. They use behavior science, data, and tech to help develop inclusive and innovative teams. Before starting the Honeycomb Works, she led innovation projects at global organizations. Caroline, Caroline is the Director of Behavioral Science and Research for the Honeycomb Works. Her work bridges the gap between the world of work and academic research, applying current thinking in practical, accessible ways in order to build inclusive, psychologically safe cultures. Prior to the Honeycomb Works, Caroline spent most of her career in learning, HR and talent management, leading large scale initiatives for complex, multinational organizations across a range of industries. Right, so I'm gonna jump straight in and I'm gonna ask you both to tell me a little bit more about why you are so passionate about leaders and HR creating safe and inclusive spaces, workplaces where everybody can thrive. Melissa, I'm gonna start with you. Sure. Thanks, Marilise. First, thanks for having us. I'm very excited to, to talk about this, as you said, very important topic, and we know how passionate you are about it. So it's great to have the, have the conversation. Um, I could tell you all about the research that says inclusive, psychologically safe workplaces lead to better results, lead to better bottom line, risk mitigation, all these wonderful, wonderful things that leaders get lots of credit for. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is that people spend much of their lives sometimes most of their lives at work. And when they're being mistreated, it has a massive impact on mental health and even physical health. Leaders and human resources have a responsibility to make sure they're creating a safe environment where people can thrive, 
I don't know anything in their role that's more important. They have a duty of care for the people that are in their in their organizations, and they're ultimately responsible for the culture and and their experience, their day to day experiences. And I love that because I um, I also remember us having this conversation when I wrote my book, and you said to me, Marlies, I'm so glad you are highlighting the role of leaders and HR because at the end of the day leaders in HR are the custodians of culture and they have to do the right thing and create those safe and inclusive spaces. Um, Caroline, your thoughts, please. Um, Everything Melissa said. Um, And then I think for me, it's also that when people feel safe, they're better. They're just better in every sense. So, and yes, that has an impact for the organization as a whole, but it has this huge impact for them and for their immediate teams. When you don't feel safe, your brain's distracted. There's part of your brain occupied by protecting yourself. So when you feel safe, psychologically safe, and obviously physically safe, but mainly we're talking about psychologically here, your brain is freed up to focus on other things, on your work, on building good working relationships, And all of this contributes to um, either holding up or breaking down systems of power and oppression. So people who are different, so anybody who sits outside of what's perceived as the norm or the in-group, who aren't the majority, are more likely to experience bullying. We know that the evidence shows us that. So that's people of color, particularly black people, women, LGBTQ, anybody who's cognitively different, could be a different nationality, a different accent. All of these things mean you're slightly more likely to experience bullying at work and slightly less likely to be believed when you speak up about it. So these people tend to be seen as the problem. So whilst, yeah, obviously bullying is objectively bad, we need to stamp it out wherever we find it, it also perpetuates these ingrained systems where we hold some people down and elevate others. It's also linked to mental health. And ultimately, it means that people are less likely to be able to see themselves working for an organisation long term. So, yeah, it's really bad. Bullying is bad. We need to get rid of it. But also it just has this huge like systemic impact on um, on people, on their ability to develop their careers, on their mental health. It has this huge knock on impact. Um, so, yeah, I could talk about that for ages, but hugely passionate about about making sure that leaders in HR take take responsibility for it. Yeah, and I think that's such that's such an important link because we have a lot of organizations now newly committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you know, they focus on pipeline, they focus on recruitment processes, but as as Caroline so eloquently put it, this part of the culture is what perpetuates this unfairness within and inequality within organizations. This is the systematic part of what we call systematic inequality, or part of it anyway. And that that brings me nicely to the toxic trio. So I often talk about the toxic trio. So much like a fire triangle where you need heat and oxygen and fuel for a fire to ignite, you need a toxic trio um, in a bullying situation. So you need the bully, the victim and the culture. And I controversially always say, you know, a bully cannot bully without a victim and a culture that allows the bullying to happen in the first place. Um, so Caroline, I really welcome your thoughts on that. Um, 
controversially. Um, I do think we have to be careful about saying the victim allows the bullying to happen. And I know that's absolutely not what you're saying when you say that. Um, it's We absolutely, obviously, all have to take responsibility for our own actions and reactions to any given situation and be careful that we aren't uh, complicit in what's happening but we also have to recognize that for some of us we have more power than others and sometimes that's really hard to see that in a situation um, and sometimes it might just come down to access to power we might not have the power but we have access to other people who do have power so for some people they have things they can do when they're being bullied and it's really important when you're in a situation where you're being bullied and there is something you can do you recognize that and take action but a lot of people don't have as much power or as much uh, as many opportunities to deal with the situation so some people can afford financially afford to walk away from a job maybe for a couple of months, might not be for a long term, but they can afford to walk away from that situation or risk losing their job. For other people, that just isn't an option. They don't have some other option to fall back on. And we have to recognise that because for some people, and as I mentioned before, some people are less likely to believe, be believed than others. And if you're in that situation and you know that you raise a grievance or you do something about the situation, you're likely to be the one that's penalised. You've seen this in situations around you. Maybe you have colleagues in similar situations. Maybe you've spoken up in the past. And if you can't, even if it's a small risk, a tiny risk, that if you step forward and say, I'm being bullied, you'll lose your job, that means that you might feel completely powerless to do that. And we have to, we have to recognise that situation and that that happens even in organisations that seem to have really positive cultures, that still happens. It only takes one bad manager, right? One manager who's going to stamp down and suppress and get rid of somebody who knows how to, how to get someone out the door um, or hide, hide the things they've been doing and someone's in that situation. But this is where the culture piece really steps in, I think. Like um, other people around stepping in and saying, okay, this person is being bullied or I saw this situation happen. That's really powerful. Um, and we're way more likely to believe onlookers and people who speak up than the, the people who are being bullied. Um, yeah, so I think absolutely it does take, it takes a group, but I do think we have to recognise the power and privilege that some people hold. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, think, I think the the piece for me around, um, and, and, I, and I think it's important to distinguish between a target and a victim, because I think you don't necessarily automatically become a, a victim to workplace bullying. It's, you can, you can be targeted, but the moment um, you're in that situation where it's repeated, it's health harming, so it's affecting, as Melissa said earlier, your mental and your physical health, that's when you're in a situation where you need help. And, um, um, you know, we could easily say, oh, you've got to take back your personal power. But if you if you have that power dynamic, as you say, Caroline, where you don't, um, you, you're in, not in a position of power and the other person, the bully, is in a position of power and abusing their position of power, then the culture becomes absolutely critical and the leaders and the people around you who then step up to do the right thing. So and I think I just oh, I just want to add add to that because this is part of why it's so important for human resources and leadership to step in because I think a lot of times our instinct is resilience training or move the person to another team all of these things that penalize the victim and don't address 
the problem. And all you're doing is you're, you're punishing the person that is the, is the, is the victim of the, of the, of the bullying, but you're also protecting that bully. You're, you're giving them more power to impact more, more people. And I think this is one of the, the things that we really need to shift in our perspectives in our, in our industry, which is, addressing a symptom of the problem that winds up doing more harm versus going to the source of the problem and really making sure that it's the bullying that's not unacceptable, not trying to put a little, uh, some band-aids and a little duct tape around with a bubble around the person who's being bullied because that's not going to help anyone. Exactly. And so it brings me beautifully on to my next question, Melissa, for you is why is it so important that the bullies are being held accountable? Yeah, and I think, you know, from, from, from what we see in, in, in organizations, a, a lot of times people will go to HR and leadership and, and, and it won't be and it won't be addressed. And what happens then is that it sanctions the it 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 supports the behavior, right? It tells everybody in the organization that that behavior is acceptable. In some places, if the people that exhibit those behaviors get promoted, it even says that that's the desired behavior, that that is actually the thing that's going to get you get you success. So we learn what is this accepted behavior from, from those around us. And it's the people in power that have the ability to say it is or it isn't. And if we shift that and say positive empathetic behavior is rewarded and bullying is not tolerated, you'll create this positive, positive culture. But if you tolerate it, you create a culture of, of bullying. And I think we often see this perception that the bullies are the high performers. And so we have to protect them. And But as, as Caroline said earlier, you know, people are better without the bullying. I think we there's a there's a great PR around around bullies and their marketing of their abilities and and the things that they're delivering. But what that's missing is that if you take away all that negative, toxic behavior, how much better everyone else could be, and how you wouldn't be relying on one on one person. And we've also seen a lot of instances where you find out a few years later, actually that person was doing quite a poor job it was just being covered up with this aggression and people being too afraid to speak up or 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 complain and, and that's why i always talk about the emotional and the financial cost so how much is the brilliant jerk costing your organization and um, so i know caroline you have some um some data and some evidence to back up you know the the sort of um uh, information that, that Melissa just shared. So why don't you tell us a bit more about this, the data and the science? Um, so what I find really powerful and really interesting is how, um, how really small acts can hold someone accountable and create this change in the culture. So the research shows that just the act of challenging someone when they say something, bullying, racist, sexist, discriminatory, anything along those lines, just the act of challenging them means that they're less likely to do it again. It doesn't mean they won't do it again, it means they're less likely to. And I think firstly, that's really powerful because we often feel like, Yes, leaders have a huge amount of power. HR has a huge amount of power. But all of us actually have quite a lot of power. So we all have this ability, if we see or hear something as an onlooker, to step forward and say, okay, that wasn't that wasn't okay. 
And just doing that, even if you get a negative reaction in that moment, means that that person's less likely to do again. And every time someone does this, every time someone challenges, you're reducing the chance of it happening again. You're setting the bar for what's acceptable in your team, in your organization, even with your group of friends. Um, I think that's hugely powerful. And then when you add to that, that um, it's between... It's between about 15 and 40%. So it's a big range of people in a group starting to change their own behavior creates this ripple effect. So it comes out at around 25%. So think of it as about one in four people. So if you've got a group, a team of 12 people, and it takes three of them to start regularly challenging, to start calling things out, and you're creating this change. So the accountability piece is just super, super important. Yes, at a high level. Yes, when it's, you know, the big, toxic, really nasty bullying, absolutely have to set a baseline and say this is unacceptable. But it's also all these day-to-day little bullying actions and stepping up against those. If you hold people accountable for those too, it can change the organisation. Yeah, wow, that's that's fascinating, Caroline. And, you know, I um, I discovered when I did research for my book that if you look at narcissism, um, you know, between 5 and 10% of people um, are sort of classified or can be classified as extreme narcissists. So not necessarily people with narcissistic personality disorder. So the criteria for NPD is you meet five out of the nine criteria according to the the manual, the DSM-5 manual for psychiatric disorders, um, that's someone, so an extreme narcissist is someone who potentially meets four out of that nine criteria. And if you just go through the list, you can easily tick that off for a very sort of toxic, dangerous individual in the organization. So I find that absolutely fascinating. So if you think about between five and 10%, so between one and two people out of 20 in your team who could be potentially very dangerous, that is quite extraordinary. It's it's huge, isn't it? Even as you say that, like five to 10%, that's a huge number of people. And then when you add to that, that those people are likely or slightly more likely to be in positions of power, um, then that's that's quite terrifying, isn't it? It shows how important it is that leaders do create, you know, take responsibility for creating these safe spaces and make sure that those people don't either don't end up in power or if they do, that they're held accountable for their actions. Yeah. And Caroline, why why would those people be more likely to be to be in power? So um, the research shows that just statistically, um, if you look at the proportion, as Marilee said, five to 10% of the population, they occupy, I can't remember the exact stat, but they occupy a much higher percentage than five to 10% of uh, management and leadership roles. Um, And that's for a whole host of reasons. But effectively, if you are somebody who... um, is very comfortable being louder, stepping on other people. Maybe you are somebody who is adept at being more manipulative or hiding some of your more negative traits or the traits that you know aren't considered acceptable, then you're more likely to be promoted because you're willing to do things that maybe other people aren't. Add to that that um, leaders don't tend to see this stuff so a lot of leaders pride themselves on really understanding what's going on in their teams and organizations even in small organizations and we've actually had this in a client recently it's not a big business it's 400 people um 
and the leaders feel like they they know what's going on. But when you dig in, you find that they really don't. They don't know that there's certain managers who are bullies, absolutely bullies. And they don't see that because these individuals are so good at hiding it. They just don't see that behavior. They don't show those actions when they're around leadership, um, which does so, show a certain conscious conscious thought, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So what a strategy there on yeah. the part of the bully. Yeah. <laughs> and and so Caroline, I'm I'm curious therefore to know um how can leaders know? So what what is the sort of the clues for a leader? If if I'm a leader and I want to create a safe and in, inclusive environment where people feel psychologically safe to speak up and to challenge the status quo, what must I do as a leader to really understand? what's going on in my team and, and the, 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 the dynamics and the environment that my people find themselves in? Um, so I think there's a number of things. So firstly, rethink, we have to rethink our idea of what the image of a leader looks like and sounds like and acts like. So what behaviours we reward, what behaviours we tolerate. I did some um, research on this about 18 months ago. It's quite a large, a large number of people in a, a big organization. Um, and what we found was that this, the stereotypes of the great orators the, who dominate a room, these people who we, you know, when you, you know, when you think of a great leader, it's, it's often someone with a certain body language, it's often a man um, who can and speak and really articulate and all of this, right? Um, but those people are memorable and then you know as as somebody who people look up to on a tv or or whatever in public fine but when you're in an organization what we found is that those aren't the people that make an impact those aren't the people we see as having really strong leadership skills it's the people who are empathetic the people who are developing others who are um, genuinely valuing collaboration and challenge and open discussion these are the people who make an impact as leaders. These are the people that other people say, that person, that's a great leader. Not this idea of the, you know, the person standing on the, the pulpit or the person who can uh, speak over others. It's not the loudest person in the room that is considered a great leader. But those are often the people who are rewarded the most. So, and this is what we found that the people who are perceived as great leaders in that sense, this empathetic sense, are not the people who are necessarily promoted into leadership roles. And so firstly, absolutely have to rethink what we consider a great leader to be if we want to change the culture and change, move away from this more kind of toxic, these toxic environments, we have to, we have to start there. Yes, and uh, that that's fantastic. Rethinking the way we think about leadership, you know, what leadership means, what it means to be an amazing leader, and it sort of reminds me on the, on the, um, of this concept of human human centered leadership. You know, putting people at the heart of everything we do, because people matter at the end of the day, and making all your decisions around that frame of mind of human centricity, I think is, is, is absolutely key. So Melissa, I want to come on to therefore the role of HR, um, because of course we, we said earlier that HR and leaders have a critical role to play in setting that tone and creating that climate, that safe space. Um, and I often refer to HR as the custodians of culture. 
Um, so what, why has got HR's got such an important role in this? Yeah. And, you know, I think HR is in a, is in a bit of a funny position because they're both responsible to the organization and they're also responsible for the individuals within, within an organization. And sometimes those things are, are in conflict. They're both compliance and punishment as well as care and support. And I think it can make it difficult for HR to do the right thing, but even I'm gonna, not going to say more importantly, but I think when you are in a situation where HR is genuinely trying to do the right thing and look out for people, it can also be hard for people to trust HR and trust that they they will they will do that. And I think going back to what Caroline was saying about this organization where the leadership didn't know, the HR team didn't know, um, you know, it's up to HR to put in the structures, the policies, the environment that not only stops bullying and harassment from happening but make sure that people understand what's happening, that they're transparent about it, that they put in ways for people to report. I mean, I think this is one of the really interesting things that Caroline did in this organization and does in other organizations that we work with, which is find ways of gathering this data, of establishing a trust, of creating pathways to report things that are anonymous, and really sort of taking this data-driven approach to let's really look at this, look at this problem. Because I think what I would what I would suggest to an HR team is that if you don't think your organization has a bullying problem, it probably means that people aren't coming to you because you're not going to have any organization where somebody doesn't get through that is treating people poorly or or unfairly. So I think you need to really look at, do you have a mechanism for people to share that feedback? Do you have something where people can be anonymous and report? Do you have a regular sort of belonging engagement survey that is asking explicit questions around around bullying and and things like that? Um, Because that's really, it's, it's really critical that you are creating not only the processes and systems and acting when it comes to you, but also making sure that you've established that trust and earn the, earn the privilege of people actually coming to you and asking for, and asking for help. Yeah. And I've, um, I've recently spoken to someone who told me about a colleague who did ask for help, did go to HR and then was just told that nothing's going to be done. They'll just have to suck it up. Um, and, you know, that was 30 years ago and, you know, she left that organization and today um, when someone asks her about the organization, she just keeps quiet and I think that mm-hmm. says it all. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we know that, um, and again, bringing it back to that diversity, equity and inclusion that so many HR teams are focused on, you know, we have networks, people in out groups talk to each other and will share where the toxic cultures are and know what organizations to, to avoid. So it's one of the things to think about if you're not getting a diverse group of people applying for your roles is what your, what your reputation is like in the whisper network. Caroline, do you have any examples to share with us? Um, Absolutely, masses. Um, and you, it's interesting you say. Um, unfortunately, it's my job. I just spend a huge amount of time talking to people in businesses and finding out what their experiences are. And um, and unfortunately, a lot of the time, it's not it's not as good as we'd like it to be. Um, I find it interesting that you spoke to someone and it was thirty years ago. I hear stories like that all the time now, uh, where they've gone to HR and um, there was one incident where they went to HR. Um, 
and it felt like it was being taken seriously. And then it turned out that the um, HR had gone to senior leaders in the business and told them about it without permission. And it actually resulted in more bullying because the the, the woman who'd made the complaint started um, hearing comments about her in all sorts of different arenas from senior leaders. So it, it made it like 10 times worse. And I haven't heard that story just once. I've heard that story in lots of different pockets. So we have to be so careful. That was an extreme. A lot of, most of the time, the HR teams I work with aren't, aren't that irresponsible. Most of the times the HR teams we work with are horrified when they get we get feedback because we'll collect feedback not just on leadership and managers, but also on how much do you trust your HR team. And they're absolutely hor- you know, horrified when they get this feedback. And then when we start to dig in in the research, one of the most common things to find is that there is a disconnect between the way HR is trying to set everything out and what they think they're doing and how it's actually being executed in the business. So the classic example, which we find all the time, is that what is being rewarded in terms of success is completely different to what HR is trying to set up. So HR might be talking about setting up competencies that are all to do with empathetic leadership. They might be uh, setting criteria for promotions that are all not just about technical skills, but also about their behaviors and so on. And then we dig in and we find that the absolute opposite is happening, what we call shadow processes. So, you know, leaders are managing to promote to just, you know, promoting the people they want to promote and um, and the behaviours that HR are trying to instill in the organisation just aren't happening because, again, people are getting stretch assignments or they're being rewarded in other ways. So it's not just formal reward. It's all the, the, the nuanced stuff just being in the in-group and so on. And so what happens is you get this huge gap between what you're being told by HR and what you see happening in the business. So what happens? Who gets blamed? HR, because it looks disingenuous, doesn't it? You feel like HR is telling you one thing and something completely different is happening. You're seeing bullying behavior, you're seeing people being promoted despite the fact you know that they're a bully. And then you've got HR over here talking about wellness and how everybody needs to be included. And it feels horrible, doesn't it? That's going to feel like a complete disconnect. So for HR, I think there's a really, they have to be really conscious of this, of what we call shadow processes or the way it's playing out in reality in organisations. And they have to be getting close to employees. They have to be having that regular dialogue through surveys or interviews or conversations where they're really interacting with the business and understanding what the reality is like, not just, you know, what they're trying to do to the business. And, and which begs the question in my mind now is how often is HR on the receiving end of bullying? Yeah, um, so I did uh, some research with an organisation recently and um, one of the, we asked two questions around bullying and harassment. One is how often have you uh, experienced it in the last year at the organisation? How often have you witnessed it? And then we provide a long list of different types of bullying, harassment, discrimination and so on. And they can they can tick as many as apply for what they've witnessed and what they've experienced. And what we found was that um, for the HR team, it was materially higher than for both experience and witness than we were seeing in other areas of the business. Just to say, about a quarter of the business were saying they'd experienced bullying in some form. But for, for the HR team, I think it was about 40%, and uh, about 50% of them had witnessed it in some way. 
And that's not really surprising, is it? When it is your job to go out daily and challenge senior leaders and say, okay, what you're doing is not okay, for them to have some pushback to experience bullying themselves. And I think that's a really important call out, Marilise, and to go to Melissa's point earlier about HR being stuck in the middle all the time. Um, I I worked in HR for 10 years or different aspects of 10 years uh, of HR. And I can comfortably say I experienced bullying in some form in every organisation I worked with in that time when I was in-house. And I would say that a lot of HR people have been in that situation. You are stuck in the middle. You are having to challenge and push back all the time. And there does also need to be, I think, some roots for HR, HR for HR. We need to be protecting those teams as well. Yeah, totally. I wish I could say I'm surprised, but I'm not. Thank you so much. Are there any sort of final thoughts that you would like to share before I wrap us up? Melissa? Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing the only thing to say, just building on that, I mean, I think Caroline gave some great, very specific things that people can do in their in their organizations. And I think, you know, I don't want it to sound like we're just picking on or attacking human resources because as we've just been, we have a tremendous amount of empathy for the tough position that HR is in. And most people got into HR because they cared about people. It might've been beaten out of them after many, many years, but that's mostly why they started in in human resources. So I think the only thing I'd like to say is uh, if you need help, get in touch. We're always happy for just a conversation to say what's going on, how are you doing, and giving a little bit of advice on some things that you can do, do to take the first steps to try to address these things, because it is it's it's hard. You're moving up. You're moving against some very strong forces in an organization that really, and again, it's in an organization. It might not be an individual who's stopping it. Your individual leaders might be great, but when this comes to a collective whole of trying to truly believe that we have this wonderful, inclusive, great culture, that it starts to protect itself. So I think I would just say, um, yes, we know it's, we know it's hard. And if we can help get in touch, we're always happy to just have a chat and give you, give you a little bit of advice if that's useful. What's the best way to get in touch, Melissa? Coach at the Honeycomb Works is the best way to connect with either myself or Caroline or Melissa at the Honeycombworks.com or Caroline at the Honeycombworks.com. Very easy to remember. That's simple, <laughs> simple enough. Well, thank you so much. Caroline, do you have any um, final thoughts? Um, I think my one piece of advice, if nothing else, would be just to not tolerate bullying if you hear about it if you witness it say something do something don't sit by and let it happen that's normally that's normally where it goes wrong the uncomfortable conversations or gets avoided and that beautifully ties in with bullyproof and finding your roar and facing that difficult conversation because I always say you know you can you, you can only do something about it if you speak up and uh, it's brave and it takes courage but it's better than the alternative. I don't think the alternative is an option. Over the long term, it's definitely not the option. So it's always um, better to to say something. And if you're not feeling brave enough to face the bully head on, you you can always ask for help. And uh, 
you know, we've, we've as, as you know, both Caroline and Melissa share today with us, there's, there's ways and means to do it. So um, I hope you enjoyed the session today. Um, I certainly learned a lot, as I always do. Um, but yeah, do, um, do get in touch uh, with, with both of them if you would like to know more. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Marilise. Thanks, Marilise. Join us again next time for more essential insights and practical tips on the Bullyproof podcast. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show, as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with Marilise on social media or via her website, www.marilise-de-billiers.com. Don't forget to review and rate this show on iTunes. Thanks for listening.